Kelly and Susan. Susan keeps him straight. I knew I'd get an amen on that one. You know, all that kind of stuff. Have you had a good day today? I think you sound like you have. Good Mother's Day. Some of you wait for hours to get some dinner this afternoon. Stand in line. I don't know about all that, but anyhow, I'm glad that you're here. And I, I think probably the kind of people that come to church on Mother's Day evening are good people. And so there's been something on my mind that um, I'm going to share with you. It's a little bit different than what I normally would do, but uh, it's just us. And I, I think most of us are friends. Um, and if, if we're not, we probably aren't going to be, so neither one of us are going to lose anything. So it'll be all right. But if you have your Bible, um, open up to Second Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, what did you think would happen in church on Sunday night? Just curious about that. There's probably a pew Bible there, but um, I, I want to share something that the Lord has been convicting me over uh, for the last few months, uh, really since January. And what I want to do, this will make some of you nervous, but uh, I'm going to tell you what I want to do anyhow, is I want to share with you what probably should be three sermons. Now, I know that I'm long-winded with one. I'm not going to preach three sermons to you. I'm going to share with you what probably should be divided into three sermons. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to just work through this chapter of 2 Samuel to make our way down to what the Lord has been speaking to me. And I believe if we would be open to what he would say to us, that we'd probably be convicted tonight. You know, conviction isn't a bad word. We might be confronted, and if we receive that confrontation and respond to His Spirit, by the time we leave this place, we can be changed. And that's what I want. Isn't that what you want? And so let me tell you, there, there are really, what I believe, two main sections of the sixth chapter of Second Samuel with a little interlude in between that ties them both together. The first section would go through um, verse 1 down through the first part of verse 10, 10a. And this, of course, is a story that will be familiar to most people that are here tonight. It's the story of Uzzah and the Ark of God. Then the second main section would begin in the second half of verse 12, 12b, the ending part, through verse 23, and it's the story of David and Michael when the Ark comes to the city of David. Um, and then the little interlude occurs between 10b and 12a that just kind of ties it all together. And what I want us to see is how the, the, the whole story kind of flows together and what we can learn from it tonight. Now, when you come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, you remember that it's at this point that David now has been crowned king of the United Kingdom there of Judah, Israel, all, all that sort of thing. Up to this point, you know, he's had conflict with Saul. Um, but now, what had been foretold many years before, when he was an afterthought in his own father's mind. You remember that day when, when Samuel came to Jesse's house and all the boys went before, except for David because he was the shepherd, and he's surely not kingly material. But what had been anointed back on that day is now fulfilled. David is the king. Saul is out of the picture. And if you read through 
uh, chapter 5, it's really interesting to see how God directs the battles, how David is in tune with what God is directing, and we see how victory comes. So much to the point that when you come to the beginning of chapter 6, David is, is in his rightful place, and what his desire is now is to go and fetch the ark of God and to bring it to Jerusalem. He wants to bring it to the city of David to place it in the place that he has erected for it. Now, you'll remember, you know this, that God did not allow David to build a permanent temple. That was what Solomon did, but there was a tent, there was a place that had been erected that, that it would belong, and so David wanted to bring God, uh, the ark of God, the symbol of God's blessing and presence amongst his people, home and put him in his rightful place. So at the beginning of chapter 6, we see it's almost as, as a military leader would do. The scripture tells us that David takes 30,000 of Israel's choice men. And I can't help but think that when we see this happening, that this is kind of a military type thing. David was the king, which meant he was the leader of the army. He had been victorious. Um, and you see that he is now going to retrieve the ark with his army. It's been in the home of Abinadab, and now we see that he is going to bring it to its rightful place. And you know that God, I, I think I can just speak like this, God is a God of order. You, you realize that there are certain things that he has um, prescribed, certain ways that certain things are to be dealt with. And you realize that the transport of the ark of God, um, he had said how this should happen. We know that the ones who should have been transporting the ark would have been of the Levites, the tribe of Levi. Now you remember that the Levites, they were that tribe that when the portions of land were allotted to, to the different tribes of Israel, they didn't receive a portion because God would be their portion. They would serve him. He would be their satisfaction. And they were the ones that were to attend to. And when the ark would be transported, it was very specific. It would be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And the way that would happen is, is they would slide um, rods or poles through, for the lack of a better term, um, rings or hoops on the side of the ark. And then they would carry it on their shoulder. That's how it was to be transported. But on this occasion... When David has the military, I, I mean, when he's going out and in and, and just this, this show of strength, it seems, he's going to, it, it seems as though they overlook the directive that God had given. Because we read that when they go to get the ark of God from the home of Abinadab, um, who lived on a hill, it says that over and over in this story, that they take a new cart to set the ark upon. You've heard this story, right? Nod your head. They, they, they take this new cart to place the ark upon. And I'm just going to say this. They're not taking the Chevette. <laughs> uh, and I'm not knocking a Chevette. I used to drive one. I mean, we want to forget, but we can't forget. I had a, <coughs> excuse me, I had a, a two-tone, actually three-tone if you count the rust, Chevette that um, I think is still knocking around Cincinnati. I was over there the other day, and I swear I saw it down going down one of the streets. I sold it for $500 years ago. I think it takes a licking, but it keeps on ticking. It's just going and going and going. 
And there's nothing wrong with the Chevette, but this isn't the Chevette. I mean, this is the Cadillac. They're taking a new cart. I want you to see, it seems as though the intention was right, but I want to caution you tonight that it doesn't matter if it looks right. If God said don't, then you don't. It doesn't matter if it looks good in the eyes of men. If God has said otherwise, it's disobedience, and disobedience is sin. It does not please him. And so we watch as they go to retrieve the ark, and they place it up on this new cart that is driven by Abinadab's boys. Interesting names, once again, Uzzah. Are there any Uzzahs here? Uzzah and Ohio, and, and that one kind of makes me laugh just a little bit because I'm from Cincinnati, and most of Ohio doesn't claim Cincinnati. They think it's part of Kentucky. I mean, greater Cincinnati is northern Kentucky. Our airport is even there, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, people around home and different places I go, they'll say Ohio. It's Ohio, uh, but they'll say Ohio, and his name is Ohio. You don't care. But anyhow, it's, it's, it, 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 it's funny to me. It's just kind of reversed. But we see that they're going to drive the cart that is transporting the ark. And there's something in my mind that um, begins to happen, some questions that I begin to have. Um, I wonder, because it had been in their father's home and they had been around it, I wonder if they had become too familiar with the ark. So you do understand that there's a danger in familiarity. When something becomes familiar, it's common. And when it's common, it's not other anymore. Something other has been lost. And we watch them. It almost seems as though they're treating it as another piece of furniture. They're treating it as another item that's just be to... Because we see them as they come to the threshing floor. You remember this, this cart is being pulled by an ox. And when they come to the threshing floor, you know it's uneven. So the ark begins to, well, the ox begins to stumble. The cart begins to pitch to and fro. And the ark becomes what seems to, at least Uzzah, becomes vulnerable, becomes unsteady. And so what Uzzah does is he reaches out his hand. And can I just pause here and just remind you, God is not vulnerable. I think we need to remember that from time to time. Because some of us feel like we have to be his protector. No, God is not vulnerable. We are. And yet, Uzzah, and again, it seems as though his intent is pure. When the ark begins to seem unsteady, when it seems vulnerable because of the, the cart and the threshing floor and the ox, when he reaches out to steady the ark, he places his hand upon that which is to be other, upon the holy thing, upon the ark of the covenant. And when he places his hand upon the ark, God's anger, the word says, is stirred and Uzzah is struck dead right there. You remember the story. It made David mad. It said it angered David. And I'm just going to go this far to say, David didn't have any right to be angry. This was no secret as the significance of the ark of God. You remember I said it this morning, it was between the cherub that his presence was thought to dwell. It was from the ark that he would communicate 
to his people. And God has been very specific. This is the thing about God. It's not, it's not hidden from us. You know, a lot of us like to act as though things are not black and white. But when it comes to God, he has told us what is and what is not. And he said back in Numbers chapter 4 verse 15 that nobody should lay their hand upon the holy thing. Nobody should touch the ark. And if they were to do that, the result, the penalty would be death. So what you see happening when Uzzah does what he was forbode to do, he reaches out and touches Then God, true to his word, true to his character, he does not lie. His anger is stirred and he strikes him dead. David had no right. To be mad, for the first place, it's not being transported the way it needed to be. This is not some army to be conquered by the army of the Israelites. This is not some, no, this is God. He has prescribed. And even though the celebration is going on, it comes to a sudden stop when we watch Uzzah laying. Well, the anger of David soon turns into fear it's really interesting when you watch the transition of the story because it begins out seeming as though the ark was vulnerable but now david realizes that they're the vulnerable one and he begins to question and begins to wonder how can i take the ark back to the city how can i finish what I've started. And so what he decides to do in, in that fear is he aborts the mission. He abandons the ark. He leaves it in the home of Obed-Edom. I won't even ask if there's an Obed-Edom because there's not. Unless you had really weird parents. I don't know. He, he you know, leaves them there at the home of Obed-Edom. That closes the first story and it brings us into this little interlude. Because what we find out in verses 10b through 12a is that the ark of God left there in the home of Obed-Edom just for a short span of time. Um, we're not talking about a long period. The word tells us that it was left there for three months. And I don't know how you want to figure out how many days that was. I don't know if you want to go by our calendar, if you want to say maybe 90, 91, or maybe less, whatever. If it's leap year, who knows? You, you know, I, I don't know. But we do realize that it's not a long period of time. And yet, because the ark was at Obed-Edom for three months, this is what we read. And this really gets my mind wondering. It says that God <laughs> blesses the home of Obed-Edom. So much so that they begin to hear about it back in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what you think about that, man. But, but, but I want to know what kind of blessings were going on that they begin to hear about it in three months. Uh, you you got to understand, some of us think that the only thing that travels is bad news. I mean, it'll spread like wildfire. We'll be sure to carry that. But obviously, good news. I, don't you want to know, am I the only weird one here? I want to know what he was blessing them with. I want to know how, why the bless. what kind of blessings were so great 
that the entire household of Obed-Edom was being blessed and they heard about it back in the city. I mean, they abandoned it back in the country, but now back in the city, in the big city of David, they're hearing how God is moving so much so that it causes some confidence to occur. There's something that changes within David because now hearing how he's blessing Obed-Edom and his home and his people, he's going to go and finish what he had started. So we enter into the second main section in 12b. And there's something different about the feel in the second section than there was in the first. In the first, you have a military leader who has been victorious in the battlefield when you follow through chapter 5 and everything that led before, going to retrieve the ark as the king. I mean, 30,000 of the choice men of Israel. He was taking his army with him. But now, it seems as though there's a humility present that wasn't present before. Because we watch when they even start the procession. It's in verse 13. They take six paces with the ark, and then they sacrifice. There's a difference in attitude there, isn't there? I mean, they're realizing what it is they're doing. They're understanding the significance of it all. So they sacrifice, and then after the sacrifices, they continue to make their way to the city of David. Celebration begins to occur. I mean, the only way I can think to explain it is they become ecstatic. I mean, the presence of God is so real to them in that moment. They're playing. I bet it's the best bluegrass you've ever heard. You don't think it's bluegrass? I don't know. I mean, they are playing. And out in front of the ark, we see David, the king. He's not on his horse. He's he's not leading an army. Instead, we watch him as he is dancing around. He is whirling around with all his might. And this is that point in time. That some people will say, well, David was dancing naked before the Lord. And that confuses me. Because it doesn't say that he was naked. At least not physically naked. It says that he's dancing, (laughs) excuse me, in a linen ephod. And that's really interesting to me. um, Because... There are different ideas. You do know that the priest, and remember, it was usually the priest that would go before the ark, that would transport the ark, and the priest would serve in a linen ephod. So it could be now the king has exchanged his battle garments for priestly garments. He's, he, he's no longer the conquering king. Instead of he's the one that serves. Could be that. Or it could be that um, he's just been stripped free from all that junk. The reason I say that is, how many of you all watch uh, PBS? I do. Am I, I'm glad I'm not the only boring one. Not that you're boring. But, but you know, I like those shows, of, especially like medieval type things with the kings. King Alfred and, and Elrod. No, there wasn't an Elrod, but you, you might as well. Some of them look like Elrod, but anyhow. You know, got all these kings, and and I've been watching him recently with uh, with the Vikings, 
Any of you watch that Viking stuff? It's kind of gruesome and gory, but it's interesting. And so, you know, whenever they're going out to face the Danes, when they're going out to face the Vikings, they're always this scene where the king is getting ready because he's going to lead the army out to battle. And so they put this mesh thing over top of him. Looks like a chain, uh, real tight chain link type thing. And what that is, it's, it's, it's um, a modern day equivalent probably to a, a bulletproof vest, except for it wasn't bulletproof. <laughs> I mean, it would stop an arrow from going all the way in, but it's still going to get in. I mean, if you get a spear coming at you or a sword, it'll probably stop at some. I mean, you're still going to get cut. It's going to hurt, but maybe just not as bad. Are you all even with me tonight? I mean, it's just going to go as deep as it should. That's supposed to stop it. So that's the bottom layer, and then there's some covering there, and then they put on the, the armor, the breastplate, and all that sort of stuff. Well, you do realize if you're going to carry all that stuff around, you have to have a protective layer as well. You, you know that, right? How many of you ever worn wool? Have you ever done it without a T-shirt? It's uncomfortable. And so this, not to be silly, would be the protective garment. Or you could say these, he's in his drawers. Oh, come on, don't act shocked. Uh, he's wearing his undergarments. What? That's what they are. He's out there. He's not naked. He, he's out there dancing around before the Lord. But here's what I want you to see. Before he felt vulnerable back at Uzzah's house. But now he's vulnerable in the presence of God. Now he's willingly vulnerable in the presence of God, dancing and whirling around, worshiping him. And the thing that happens when you become vulnerable before God you become vulnerable before men. See, and I can't help but think that that's maybe why some of us don't ever really worship. Because we know what happens when someone gets excited because this is a place, one of the few, where people still get a little excited. And I get a vantage point from up here to be able to watch when that starts happening, some people start snickering. And you begin to wonder, well, if I act like that, what's somebody going to think about me? There are people that will say, well, you know, I'm not going to sing because someone might hear me. We never truly worship because we're unwilling to become vulnerable in his presence. True worship brings us bare before him. And the natural consequence of being vulnerable before him is we become vulnerable between our brothers and sisters. If we could ever get to the point where we didn't care what anybody else thought, maybe we could restore a little bit of the excitement that we used to have. But here he is, vulnerable before God, and because of that, vulnerable before other people. And you say, well, Billy, why are you saying that? Where are you getting that from? Well, remember, he is the king. And don't forget, it hadn't been too long since Saul had been gotten rid of. And there are still people that are loyal to Saul. 
And now here the king is out in the open in his drawers dancing around. That means he has no protective layer on. If anybody wanted to take him out, now would be the time. But his concern is not that. His concern isn't man at all. His concern is God and being pleasing to him. Oh, that the church of the Nazarene would get more concerned about being pleasing to God than being pleasing to man. Maybe we could recover who we used to be. Well, they enter into the city, and it's exciting. Again, I don't know how else to say it. There's this freedom that's going on. There's this ecstasy. There's an excitement in the whole deal. Everyone is celebrating. Well, everybody except for, well, if you look back in the palace window, up in the tower, you'll see that there's a pair of eyes. And these eyes are looking down on what's going on. Boy, that's a symbol, isn't it? Because I meet a lot of people who look down on what goes on in settings like this. I, look, I meet a lot of people who look down on enthusiasm and expressions of worship. They're looking down and they can see what's happening. And, and you'll remember who this set of eyes belongs to. It's really interesting when you read the story because... This is how this person is referred to at least three times. It might be four, but I think it's just three. The eyes belong to Michael, the daughter of Saul. That's how she's always identified. It's interesting it doesn't say Michael, the wife of David. Because after all, that's who she is. This is David's first wife, but instead it refers to her as the daughter of Saul. And she's looking down upon what's going on because you remember being the daughter of Saul. And, and the reason we know she is because when you get into 1 Samuel um, chapter 14, verse 49, you'll see that she is the youngest daughter of two of King Saul. And we know that she ended up being married to David because Saul, kind of in an underhanded way, women got the short end of the stick all the time. They were used as bargaining tools. They were all that kind of thing. And so the king would use his daughters as, as leverage and that sort of And he was going to use Michael in, in order to get rid of David. So what does Saul do? She, he marries her off to David. But the amazing thing is, you'll read in chapter 18, verses 20 and 28, that not only was she married off to David, but it says that Michael loved David. Didn't matter if her dad was going to use her as a tool or not. Michael loved David. It's interesting when you read through, you never find any place that says David loved Michael. But it does say that she loved him. And you'll remember that it was Michael, the daughter of Saul, that even saved David's life. Saul was going to send some men to their bedroom in order to kill him while he slept. And what does she do? She lowers him down the wall in order to escape. I wonder if she realized that's the last time she'd see him for a while. But she loved him so much, don't forget that, that she wanted to spare his life. She risked her own by lowering him down the wall in order to escape from her father. 
Well, some time passes. I just want you to see that Michael didn't have an easy life, even though she was a king's daughter. Some time passes by, and then Saul does something underhanded. He marries her off again. Now, remember, he's, she's already married to David. But now, he marries her off again. And then David, a little bit later, is going to send for his wife because that's his first wife. And before when I told you that it said Michael loved David, but it never said David loved Michael, you see that when Michael is coming back to David, this new guy seems to have really loved her. Because what's he doing? He's following behind. It's not real manly, but I mean he's following behind weeping. And now here she is. The daughter of Saul, married to David, the trickery all through her life, but she knows how royalty is supposed to act. She knows the difference between a king and a commoner. And now she's standing up there watching the man that she once loved, the man who has unseated her father, the man who has taken her from her true love, it seems, and he's whirling around like a common man, she'll say later. And this is what the Word of God says. It says that Michael despised David in her heart. Can I just caution you against anger tonight? Life isn't easy. Many of you know that. I wouldn't lie to you and say even when you become a Christian doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. Because it's not. If I'm very real, it's not always even fun. But God is always good. I mean, we're going to be angry, but don't hold on to that. Because anger turns to bitterness, and bitterness is a dangerous thing. It'll be your undoing. It'll be your destruction. I mean, I've just seen in 46 years of life, I've seen what bitterness can do. It can turn the pretty into foul. It really can, the pleasant into obscene. I mean, bitterness is real. One thing I've learned is that bitter people don't even like bitter people. What's that tell you? They can't stand their own. It'll be your downfall. Someone needs to hear this. I know that life hasn't been easy. You've been treated long, but God can get you. You don't have to be stuck in that place. We watch her as she watches, despising him as he whirls and dances before the Lord. Well, now, I want you to see this picture. So walk through um, verse 17. You see that she despises him at the end of 16 with her heart. David and all the people, they bring the ark of the Lord into the city of Jerusalem, into the city of David. They set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offers burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So here we see God is being placed in his proper place. He's been shown the proper respect that he deserves. And then in verse 18, when David finishes offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, now I want you to hear this because it's repeated at least four times. After David finished offering his burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now listen, he distributed among all the people. 
hear it, among the whole multitude of Israel. Now listen, both the women and the men, that's three times, here's a fourth, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Number five, so all the people departed, each to their own house. What I want you to see, that's such a powerful image, because when God is in his rightful place, everybody benefits. It says it those four to five times that all the people were blessed by the presence of the Lord. All the people received because God had come home, because God was in his rightful place. Everybody, both women and the men, were blessed by the presence of the Lord. So everybody, when God, oh, I wish we could get a hold of this in the church. We'd rather get jealous of somebody being blessed. It happens in ministry. You know I'm telling the truth. We'd rather be envious instead of just rejoicing and, and celebrating. But everybody was blessed when God was placed in his rightful place. So I want you to see the image because this is where it gets really thick. The whole city, all the multitude, women and men, received blessings because the presence of God had returned, that God was in his rightful place. Then verse 20. Now watch this. Then, after everybody was blessed, David returned to bless his own household. So having blessed everybody else, he's going to go to his own house, his own household, his own people, and bless them. But Scripture tells us that as he is making his way there, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. So here's the image. You can't escape the fact that everybody, did you hear it those four or five times? Everyone had been blessed by the Spirit, by the presence of God being in its rightful place. So David having blessed everybody else, is going to go to his own household and bless his household. And yet, as he's making his way there, Michael, the one who had been up in the tower, the one who is protective, the one who is looking down upon, the one who knows, she walks outside and she stops the blessing. Everybody else has been blessed. But before David can ever get in the door, Michael comes out and stops the blessing. I wonder how many of us are guilty of being the one that stops the blessing. I want to remind you tonight, you do not live unto yourself. Your family is affected by the choices that you make. Your spouse is affected by choices that you make. Your friends are affected. Your community is affected. Your church. Disobedience isn't just your problem. When you are disobedient, you hinder the whole work. And I wonder how many times we're guilty of stopping. Because here's the deal, folks. God isn't finished in this world. 
Sometimes you hear in the church of the Nazarene, people will say things like, well, the days of revival are gone. Have you heard it, Mickey? People will say, well, revivals just don't happen anymore. It's a different day. We're just different. Times change. And that's true. We're just busier than we've ever been. You are so arrogant to say things like that. Don't you dare come to me and tell me you're busier than a man who stood behind an ox pulling a plow. Don't you tell me that you have it harder than they did. The fact of the matter is this, is that we have more conveniences than anybody in this world has ever known. We have more options. And the reality is, is our priorities are different. We give our time, we invest our money in things that we think are important. Don't you blame everything else. Culture may change, your need has not, and neither has God. And revival is sweeping this land. The church of the Nazarene is growing in other world areas. I was listening to one of our generals uh, preach on a podcast, uh, a podcast, maybe that's what it should be called, a podcast um, last week. And I think out of all the districts in the U.S., there might have been, and I might have this number, I might be too high on this, 10 districts that showed growth. Hey, I, I, I don't get it. Michael goes out and stops the blessing because she's protective. She knows how things are supposed to be done. She's judgmental. She's the guardian of the crown. quiet in here she goes out and she stops the blessing then she says listen to what she said how glorious was the king of israel today and you do understand that sarcasm in case you don't get it that sarcasm all you have to do is think of a a a woman talking to her husband (laughs) that doesn't happen down here in south carolina don't sit there and look at me like that Just think of getting in the car when a husband and wife has been talking about where they're going to go for dinner or where they're going to have supper and no one can't make up their mind. And so when one of them decides, the other one says, well, I don't want that. It gets a little bit thick in that thing. You know, I'm telling the truth. How glorious was the king of Israel today? And here's the issue. Listen to what she says. Uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his servants, And here it is, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's up here. They're down there. And David, remember, she was raised as royalty, but David had been a shepherd. And now maybe she's thinking, you're still acting like a shepherd. Do you feel the sting? You're acting as a common man. You have lowered yourself, not only in the eyes of every, you've lowered, you are acting like a commoner. So do you see her defensiveness? 
Do you see her protectiveness of her position, of her husband's position? The pride that's dripping from those comments? David is going to speak back. She, he says to Michael in verse 21, it was before the Lord, and, and, and we know this, we've already said it, we know that he was experiencing freedom in the presence of God. By the way, can I remind you where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We're lacking that in a number of our places anymore. But we see, he says, it was before the Lord, and then he gets his little jab in, who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel? Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. So he's going to set her straight. And then he goes on to say, I'll become even more undignified. I'll dance naked. <laughs> Maybe that's where it comes from. You guys have gotten too serious all of a sudden. I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for those maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. So we see the discussion that goes on. But here's the verse I want you to get a hold of. Verse 23, therefore, now remember, it's an important word we don't read over. It's a connecting word. This is, everything else has built to this point. Therefore, because of what we have read, you could actually take it all the way back to the beginning. Because of what we've seen, therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Because of her actions, because of her attitude, because of her indifference, she's barren. And you got to understand something. I, I don't want to lead you to believe the wrong thing. The language does not say either way. It doesn't say that the Spirit closed her womb, that God closed her womb. Uh, I mean, we don't know if this was an act of God or if David simply didn't visit her in the wedding bed anymore. However it was, she didn't produce life. She didn't have any children. And you say, well, what's the big deal? In the day of Code Pink, I guess it's not a big deal. But you remember back in this day, especially for a queen, her duty was to produce an heir. To produce life. Children, if not boys, at least some girls to be used as bargaining. And to be barren in all reality it was shameful. Queens had lost their heads for less. It was shameful. And because of the way we see her acting, because of everything that happened, she was barren. No life was produced for Michael to the day of her death. Now, I told you that this was convicting to me, and I'm going to tell you now why. I've been thinking a lot lately as I'm getting older, half of 92. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about how good God has been to me. 
Because honestly, he's been better to me than I could ever possibly deserve. I remember when I started going to the church of the Nazarene. I've told you before, I, I grew up going to my papa's church, Wofford Missionary Baptist Church. And when I was 15, a girl asked me go, to go to the church of the Nazarene. And I didn't go there because I wanted to know anything about the church of the Nazarene. I didn't go there because I thought I needed to know anything about God. I thought I had that all figured out. I went there because a girl asked me, hey, church, that's a good evangelistic tool. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? That's a good, we're, you don't care. But anyhow, that's like this morning. I, I thought when you had all the ladies stand up, I, I heard that song, all the single ladies, all the single. But you don't care. But anyhow, I never got the girl. I, I, that doesn't surprise you. But I got more of Jesus than I could ever have expected. I went there because she invited me. But when I got there, it was 1987. When I went there as a 15-year-old boy, there was something, I, I mean, and this is going to sound mystical. I don't mean it to. I think you all will understand what I'm talking about. There was something different about just being on the grounds I could sense that there was something different. When I walked into the church in the foyer, I mean, it was thick. I know it's the Holy Spirit now. Then I didn't know. You could just sense it. And there was something that these people had when I went into that service that I had never seen before. I mean, I'd been part of Gospel Sings my whole life, but there was something about those folks that, that was different. There was an enthusiasm. They weren't just working it up. I mean, they had something. And what they had, Mickey, I wanted. I wanted to catch it. I wanted to live like they were living. I wanted to have that experience in my life. That's what got me. A girl invited me, but that's what got me. And now... All these years later, I go to places, and here's my concern, and you all are going to think I'm negative, but I'm not trying to be. Most places I go, I'm afraid if I had gone there because a girl named Lana asked me to go, when I didn't get her, there would have been nothing else that I wanted either. Because something has happened. Something has happened. And I can't put my finger on it. I don't know if it's, I mean, it's been more intense over the last five, six years. Maybe it's ten years. Your experience is probably more than mine. I know it is, so you could probably pinpoint it even farther than I'm speaking. But something has changed. Because most places I go, there's no enthusiasm. There's no excitement. There's no freedom. Oh, you see the pride on display. I, I, I mean, you feel the defensiveness. We think God is vulnerable, and so we want to, you know, we see the protectiveness that goes on. 
But as far as passion, as far as I, I am afraid that in the church of the Nazarene, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the Western world, we have been invaded by the spirit of Michael. We'd rather get up in our ivory towers and judge everybody else. We'd rather sit and snicker than experience the freedom that comes when God gets on the scene. We'd rather judge. And if we don't like it, we'll go somewhere else. I wish some of you would. That's why I'm not a pastor. I don't understand. If you're miserable, leave. Don't be here and be the devil. I'm sure some other pastor would be blessed to have a troublemaker come their way. I just, I don't get it. And then when they finally do leave, you board members get mad at the pastor because they don't go chasing after him. Why would you chase the trouble? I'm serious. This stuff doesn't make sense to me. There is a pruning process in the Word of God. And maybe if we'd cut off some of the dead limbs, we'd show a little bit of life. I think I might be going back to Cincinnati, Mickey. I, 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 don't, I don't understand. We've, be, we've become barren. We have. And, and you say, well, Billy, you're being negative. No, I'm being realist. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at reality. I know Rock Hill First is a little bit different. This is a good area. You all are good people. But I challenge you sometime, grab a district minutes, a district journal from somewhere. And flip through and notice how many churches go year after year after year after year without one confession of faith. I was talking to a pastor not too long ago in one of our churches of the Nazarene who, who didn't feel as though that would be important to report. Instead, the thing that really mattered was the baptisms. Wait a second. Is this the church of Christ or is it the church of the Nazarene? See, I still believe that you got to be born again. I still believe that we are saved by faith. And that there's a point of conversion. And I remember when, when I first started traveling, Pastor Chalfant used to ask me all the time, he'd say, are you preaching a second definite work of grace? I mean, people used to get red in the face. We, we believe in a second definite work of grace. And people would always have that as their thing. I've got, I'm going to tell you the truth. You, you want to know why we don't have that distinctive? You can't have a second work if you never have the first. And we've become people who have just satisfied to sit in a pew. Get a little chill every now and then. Get stirred by some music. That most of the music we sing in our churches anymore is not even biblical. But because you're not in the word of God, you'll raise your hand and think it's the best thing in the world. God deliver us 
and the spirit of Michael. God, bring us back to the place where we abandon our pride. We put our defenses down. And we freely worship in His presence, not concerned about what the world's going to think. Not concerned about what your neighbor's going to think. More concerned about God inhabiting the praises of His people. And when He inhabits, there's freedom. When God is in His rightful place, everybody is blessed. Men, women, children, lives are changed. God deliver us from the spirit of Michael. So Jesus, tonight, I'm convicted because it's easy for me to stomp, spit, and snort when I myself at times lack joy. I lack praise. I, I, I lack worship. Oh, I'm an evangelist in title. But I don't often speak to an outsider about you. Forgive me for that. Move me beyond occupation to just being one who makes disciples. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I do believe that they are good people. But something's changing and we don't have to. It doesn't have to. So help us each tonight by your spirit to examine our own life. The reality is, is we know where we, we stand. We, we, we know that. We know how long it's been since we've shared Jesus with anybody. We get mad and say, well, the pastor's not growing the church. And yet I confess, we, we know it's not the pastor's job. Sheep produce sheep, not the shepherd. It's unnatural. A shepherd can't produce sheep. Sheep do that. And yet we're satisfied to blame him. Oh, deliver us from the spirit of Michael. Help us to stop hiding behind stupid things and to come down out of our towers and to get real with you. We need revival. Not just in the Rock Hill First Church of the Nazarene. We need revival in the General Church of the Nazarene. We need revival in the United States, in the Church of Jesus Christ, in the Western world. We need to know you're moving. W would you do it again? Would you humble us to be the people to do whatever we need to do in order to see it happen? Free us in your presence so that we can dance again. But with your heads bowed, I'm going to invite you all over the sanctuary to stand to your feet, please. If you're able, quickly. There are altars here. Some have already come. You know where you are. 
physically, yeah, you're here, but you know where you are spiritually. I can't pull you to the altar. If the Holy Spirit's prompting doesn't do it, nothing will. I wonder tonight, are you satisfied? Or are you free? There are altars here. I, I, I'm, I'm going to stop. And in a moment, pastor's going to come when it's appropriate and lead us in a closing prayer. You do what the Lord would have you to do.